All right, then. Ready to do this? Absolutely. Hey, good morning to you. Welcome to the Charlotte studio. It's a long road up here, isn't it? It's pretty swanky up here. Big city. Sitting here in the middle of the forest. All right, so let's start this. I'm excited about talking to our guest today. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and do the quick intro, and we'll bring her in. She's in the green room waiting. Mm. Is it the green room or the... What's the behind-the-scenes room before you bring him into the it's studio? The, uh, she's in the green room. She's getting hair and makeup done yep. right now. She's yep. doing her vocals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, let's do this. All right, so I have this. She had a really aggressive rider, too, with a lot of demands in it, too. But you know how we've those, got a big budget, so. You know how those celebrities are. All right, welcome to the Mind Body Business Podcast. I'm Devo. This is Lisa. And we are going to have another conversation this week with a new guest, as we do every week. And these weekly conversations with these brilliant humans, as we call them, uh, we try to deconstruct some critical talking points around their superpowers and the gifts that they are bringing to the planet. Um, This is just a canned line I'm supposed to read. We believe in the power of the human spirit and creativity and connectivity and innovation are the keys to our perpetual evolution. So each week we bring on these fantastic guests, which I'm really excited. We have Andy Simon on. I had to correct myself on that because on her onboarding form, it says Andrea, but she goes by Andy. So um, we're going to have some life hack conversations with her, talk a little bit about her superpower. Uh, You can find her on simonassociates.net and of course on our favorite social media tool, the Instagram at Andrea j simon she is a corporate anthropologist which i'm excited to understand a little bit more about that and she specializes in let me try that word again she specializes in helping organizations and the people within those organizations evolve and change so it's going to be a perfect guest for us she's also the founder of simon associates management consultants and she is an award-winning author i got to get some some credentials around being an award-winning author she's done all the things Always, All the things. We always bring these people on the guests and they make me feel so small because they have so many credentials. Anyway, she has a, a fantastic podcast as well. Um, she has a new book that she just launched. It's called Rethink Smashing the Myths of Women in Business. And sort of the idea behind that book, according to the back cover, is she, I, I was reading, doing some research on this. Um, she tells stories of 11 different women from 11 different perspectives and industries across the planet who have opened up the possibilities for their professional careers. And she has three sort of key talking points throughout the book, Um, learning to become more authentic, which we often say it's an overused word. So I want to kind of, I'm going to prattle her on that a little bit, um, what that actually means to her. Um, Taking risks, which, you know, we're both big fans of, and pushing past those obstacles that others have put before them, so sort of that glass ceiling. But I don't want to, if it's good with you, I don't want to just keep it gender because a lot of the mm-hmm. stuff that she's written in her book is applicable for men and women and just people in general, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so I would like, if you're cool with it, talk a little bit around um, how to, with, with with everything that's going on right now, and you're going to have to get rid of that canvas lupus down there making noises. Where's your dog handler? <laughs> With everything going on in the world right now, how do we push past these obstacles in the midst of chaos, utilizing those three modalities, authenticity, risk-taking, and pushing past obstacles? I'm really excited about this. What she does or what she does on a general basic basis is so interesting but the last year like how has that changed and how has she been able to to help people get past all the the roadblocks that have come up okay so first you want to deal with that canine of yours yeah we have a visitor into the studio i'm not sure how he got in here but we have a dog that just joined us so andy welcome thank you thank you thank you diva it's a pleasure to be here what fun Yeah. So as you heard in the intro, I hope we did it justice. You have a lot of titles and credentials of which we don't. So try to talk really slowly. Don't use really big words. Keep it really simple for us. But I'd really like to kind of get your perspective on all the superpower things that you're doing on the planet. You're an author. You have a consultancy. Um, You've written a couple of books, right? You have a a fantastic podcast. And and I really want to, if you heard in the intro, just kind of use that central theme in a conversation around everything going on right now. How do we sort of stay mindful and present through that and still grow our business? 
Well, I'm delighted to be here. And after listening to your podcasts, um, nothing simple going on here. This is deep stuff. And in some ways, you sound like an anthropologist. How are we evolving? And, and how are the challenges that we're facing really opening up opportunities for us? Or are they not? So I am an anthropologist, and I've been um, in business for 20 years now, helping organizations do what they hate to do, which is change. The human brain hates change. If you haven't noticed, you know, we'll put on the same clothes every day. The habits drive us. We're perfectly comfortable. And when we're unhappy, oh, my goodness, we stay exactly where we are anyhow. <laughs> and we can talk a lot about why do people hate to change. Um, and then um, as I evolved my business, I, I brought out this book in 2016 called um, On the Brink, A Fresh Lens to Take Your Business to New Heights. Uh, it did win an award, but it brought us wonderful clients who needed some anthropology to help their business grow. Uh, it's amazing how they get stuck or stalled and can't see what's right in front of them. This new book came out because my husband and I launched a program at Washington University in St. Louis. We've both been involved there. I was a professor and he's an alum. Um, but the program was to help women become entrepreneurs called the Simon Initiative for Entrepreneurship. And what we found was that women needed role models. You know, when you talk about authenticity, they weren't sure who to mimic or model themselves after. And they were looking for women who weren't going to be Sheryl Sandberg, but women who could be like them. And so I started writing the book. And as I wrote it, the, I had 50 women. I wasn't sure what I was going to do with them. And I'm telling my husband the story about them. And he says, you know, they're really smashing the myths of women in business. And I said, oh, that's a much better book. I went back and rewrote the book. And, and that's the subtitle. Rethink is exactly what these women were doing. And today, it's like the timing couldn't be more amazing because we are rethinking everything, men and women. And for women to rethink who they are and where they're going uh, it's a partnership here. The guys also have to become the different conversations and different social encounters. And, you know, women aren't allowed in those rooms has to change. Women have to be heard at the conference table. That has to change. They have to be in the C-suite, but in P&L roles, not just in HR roles. I mean, there are all kinds of things going on. So it is a duality here because we can't do it alone. And who wants to? And we don't really want to overpower. We really want to have opportunity. So the women in the book were kind enough to let me share their stories. Um, but it becomes a model for thinking about one's own story. And so that word authentic is an interesting question. Who are we and how do we change? So, but that's where I'm at. And I'm developing programs, an online program to help women rethink their journey. It'll be out March 1st. Uh, we're doing a symposium in May uh, called Catalyzing the Future, Rethinking Women. And the book is a catalyst to help people do what they hate to do, change. And if you see it and you can believe it, you can become it. And so the whole idea is how do I show it? So people who might not know it's possible can say, oh, I can do that too. The we don't do it, that's not the way it's done. Those are the myths that are holding us back. Why can't we do it? And then you see all these women who did it and you go, of course I can. And so we can too. So being entrepreneurs, I have a hunch you understand that completely. Yeah, so great intro. Thank you. That was way better and more eloquent than what I gave you. So appreciate that. Um, real quickly, uh, this word authentic you heard us talking about in the in the beginning. It's an overused word. I see it everywhere. And like everything else with humans, we just kind of jump onto this bandwagon of collective consciousness and we just start prattling off terms and half the time we don't even know what they mean. <laughs> so what exactly does authenticity, what, what does being authentic really mean to you in your words? Well, let's talk about who we are as people. The brain creates a story about us. By the time you're in your 20s, you've got a really interesting movie set going on up there. And I know it sounds like it's artificial, but in fact, you live your story. So once you have a good story in there, you only see the things that conform to it. Anything that's sort of outside, you just delete. Your brain's perfectly happy to be a habit-driven creature and take you through the daily authentic you. And you are sure in every story, you're the hero, you're the big lion, or you're the, you know, you're going to conquer <laughs> everything. And, and you're going to climb the Empire State Building and save the damsel in distress. The only interesting part about it is everyone has a slightly different story. And men and women have often very different stories. But once you have that story, then being who you are becomes comfortable. And the language you use, the story you have, the script you have, think of it as a script of a play, and you're performing it perfectly well until things change. 
or until you find that that script is no longer gratifying. Uh, we did some research and 60% um, of the women were unhappy with where they were, personally and professionally. And I've been working with women now for several years and they all come up with the same moment where they realize they're really successful MBAs or CPAs or whatever, they are CEOs, um, but it's not sufficient. And so then the question is, who am I authentically? And, and is that sufficient? Or is it a time for me to take a look at the story and begin to rewrite the story for the next phase authentically? But the honesty, I mean, what we're looking for is, we're looking for great words, transparency. You know, we want to look in the mirror. Who do we see coming back at us? And the brain will only see the story that's there. And it's very happy being comfortable with the familiar. And it will only change if you begin to collaborate with your mind and change the story. But it's fascinating. You know, Lisa and Diva, when you start to imagine a new story, you start to believe it. And then you start to live it authentically. But in today's day of change, if you don't know how to do that, and I have some clients who I'm working with who don't, this story is the story. And they're unhappy. Now what do I do to change it without feeling like I've um, destroyed who I am, but I've taken it to the next stage. So we got to write the new play, begin to create the new movie set, and begin to enjoy the next part of our journey. So I think of it as a journey. So, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. So authenticity, again, back to that terminology, it sounds a little bit, I heard you drop transparency, uh, vulnerability for me. One of the things that you touched on is if, if the mind can see it and you can believe it, you can achieve it. So that sounds a lot like a lot of the jargon and language that that's becoming more and more and ever popular around self-manifestation and sort mm -hmm. of the ideologies. I, I'm recently uh, in the middle of reading a, a book um, and it's deconstructing the, the Bible. And I'm gonna I'm not gonna go biblical here, but it's deconstructing the Bible and the missing gospels. And there's some like 40 to 100 books that have been removed from the Bible. And in every one of those books that have been removed, it provides the original language of the Bible. And in, in at least 50% of the themology in those missing books, they really touch heavily on this sort of this, this personal ability of humans to achieve anything they possibly want by believing. And if they believe before it's actually happened, sort of a fake it until you make it, they yeah. can achieve it. So when you talk about, and, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go biblical here. Um, but when you talk about in praise you, yeah, <laughs> when you talk about in terms of being able to achieve it, and if the mind can see it and you can believe it, uh, let's go a little bit more deeper into that for me. What exactly does that mean? Because they sound like fancy and fun words, but what does that actually mean for someone who has no level of awakeness, if you will? It doesn't really understand it. They've just sort of been on the treadmill of life and following through and just kind of listening to what they thought they were supposed to do. And they go to college and they get a job and they buy a house and they build a picket fence, they get a dog and two kids. What exactly does that mean if someone's unhappy, they don't like what they're doing and they really want to learn how to believe it so they can achieve it? You've had several questions in there. Your biblical <laughs> stories, um, stay in there for a moment because the ones they eliminated gave empowerment to humans, it sounds like, in a way that might be threatening to an organization that would rather you be obedient, not terribly entrepreneurial. <laughs> and then you're smiling. <laughs> Did I pick up on that? <laughs> you picked up on it. <laughs> Sorry. But, you know, this, this, I mean, you know, religious organizations have existed for a long, long time to give us purpose and focus and passion, but control as well. And that's not so bad at times when we need that. Um, but on the other hand, individual Autonomy has been around for a long time as well, and that becomes threatening to both the organization, that church, whatever, um, but it's also difficult for the individual. Remember, we're herd animals, we're social. And to be a standalone, an outlier, a whistleblower, whatever you think of, an idiosyncratic kind of person, it is a bit lonely until you can assemble around others who can share the same story with you. And as herd animals, we share stories. That's our culture, what we value and believe in. But you can, in fact, um, begin to change those. So, you know, the second question is, uh, what does this mean for us in, in all kinds of ways? The question is, um, you know, we talk about empowerment. Um, humans would rather be habit-driven and not terribly um, at risk. You know, you talked a little bit about risk when we started. Um, we don't like risk. We like the familiar. That oldest reptilian part of the brain, the amygdala, hijacks everything that's new and unknown and unfamiliar. 
And you would really, really rather not learn anything new. When you have to learn something new, even a golf swing, your brain's working really hard. You've got to pay attention and you would rather just hit the ball. And it's the same in your daily life. So as your habits begin to get challenged in some fashion, you need a path to change them. And I often use theater as a metaphor here. And I think you'd appreciate this because, you know, in, in some ways we're all theatrical. But I often tell my clients that they're on a stage and they really know how to play the current stage really fine. They're, they're Macbeth. They know the rules. They know exactly how to do it. But nobody's coming to the play anymore. So now we need a new role, a new ham. We're going to play Hamlet. You don't have a script. Just think about the metaphor. You don't know how to say the words or stand on the stage with each other. You're a team here in some fashion, but you don't know how to play the game. And yet you want me to go play Hamlet. So what do I need? I need a script. Maybe best if I write it. So I often work with clients on writing that new story. It's not that hard. When you start to write it, you go, oh, I can do this. And then you have to rehearse it. Who are we going to rehearse it with? Well, I better find some people who are going to listen to my new story and support it because it's quite easy for humans to pull it down. They just love to do that. And so instead, you need some teammates who are going to help you with a new play. And then you can get on stage and have a little practice time. I like small wins. We're learning so much about the incremental, the little wins that take you to new places. And the brain enjoys the journey there instead of fighting it. So all kinds of stuff coming out of the social sciences and the neurosciences. And I don't want it to be too, too abstract for your listeners, but think about it as your play. And you've got a great character now. You can keep it. But if you're going to change it a little at a time, small wins, Try incremental. I heard somebody, a professor at Stanford, say every time he flushed the toilet, he did two push-ups. And he wanted to begin to add exercise to his day. And he found that every time he went to the bathroom, he pushed up two more times and then two more times and then two more times. And next thing you know, he became really good at doing push-ups um, a little at a time. So those are some of the things for your listeners and viewers to pay attention to because you can change. It's not that hard. You just need to have a toolkit to begin to do it. And going back to your religious reading, I think those are very interesting stories to be able to share to others and why they were left out is interesting as well. So do you think that as a whole, we have stage fright? Is that why we're, we're afraid, you know, this catalyst of change that we're living in right now, that we've, are, are we just fearful of being on that stage? Are we lazy? Do we just become complacent? Yes. Like why do we why do we stay on this hamster wheel and not change even though we know that well maybe we don't always know maybe we don't always realize that there's more I know. Or, or we don't have the maybe maybe the five people that we're hanging around with are, are the same and they're they're keeping us complacent and content as well like what what stops us from changing you know that's a, you, you you made some great points there but I often would say if you want to change have a crisis or create one I didn't plan on a pandemic. My I know, I read that on your website. <laughs> I was like, when did she write this? <laughs> but we know, to your point, that you hang out with people who are very much like you. And they are really happy doing just like you are and complaining about it. And you all feed each other's mm, stupor. I mean, it's not hard to be addicted to each other's, oh, this is bad. Oh, there's no other option. And the second thing you mentioned is you don't know what the other options are. One of the things I do is I take people visually exploring. Uh, we decide with the eyes and the heart, not with the head. The head follows, but the heart and the gut, how does it feel? What do you see? And if you only see others like you, you're all doing just fine being unhappy. But if you could go explore and see people who are, are happy, you can talk to people who are happy. You can listen, like your show, people who are making a difference. Then all of a sudden you can see it and feel it. And then your brain says, oh, I can imagine that. But I will tell you that change is not easy unless you're having this crisis. All this remote work has brought up all the creative juices. Yeah, some people aren't doing well. And I, I truly don't want to diminish that. But others are rising to the occasion and creating new workspaces, new relationships with their kids. They've never spent so much time with their husband. I had one client and they finally decided to go buy a boat they've been arguing about for four years. They found they liked each other. <laughs> I said, how interesting. Yeah, we never spend so much time just being, you know, happy together. 
So, you know, the changes you have to see and experience before you actually do them. And I think we are a little stage fright. I think that's a great word. I will borrow that. Um, because think of yourself if you were going onto a stage to perform improv. Improv is well rehearsed, but it seems like it's on the cusp. And so I think you're right on. That's a good question. I like that line as well. So you talked uh, before, I want to jump into in a minute here, how you actually work as an anthropologist, sort of that physiological and biological mechanism of humans, and how do you address that in the corporate world? But before we do that, you talked about in order to evolve, in order to change, you have to create the chaos. So we have chaos around us now. But what if we are physiologically not prepared to deal with that fight or flight concept? So we create the chaos right? Mm -hmm. and as humans, we're e we've evolved to either fight or flight. So in order to, and here's where I'm going, if, in order to m have a personal change, in order to evolve, you have to create a chaos, right? But what if the chaos you've created is too insurmountable and your fight or flight forces you to flight and so there is no growth? So how do you handle with that? Well, you know, you're, you're thinking that Remember, there's no reality, only perception. And so consequently, you've said something very important. All of a sudden, the pain that I'm feeling seems insurmountable. Is it? Or is it just the perception of it? Remember, we create this illusion that we call reality. Once we got it, it's our reality. But to your point, if it feels so big that I can't, we break it down into small little parts. And you'll find that the insurmountable can easily be deconstructed into small wins. One of the things about the brain is that if you can imagine a future that's different, write a story about it, do a, a storyboard, you know, draw it, take a big piece of paper, take a box, whatever it is, and draw. When you see it, you begin to see what it could be. And, and Evo, I think that your point is extremely important for your listeners because sometimes this seems overwhelming but it just seems overwhelming. There's nothing particularly overwhelming about it. You've just created a monster out of what could be just a molehill. And it's if your mind can change that. There's a great expression, collaborate with your mind. It believes exactly what it thinks you want it to do. So if it's easier not to see it as doable, you'll just make up a story about why I can't do it. But if you collaborate with your mind and say, of course I can do that. You know, all the stories in the book are about women who said, of course I can. I can't tell you how many companies I go into. They hire me and they say, oh, we don't do that. So, well, if you don't do that, <laughs> you can't use me because now we're going to see what you can do. And often I find that the most reluctant change folks become great leaders if you put them in the right position and you give them the experience, the skills. We run away from that reality because I don't know how. But what if I showed you how? And if we together could one at a time move along, sometimes we need a coach, sometimes we need a mentor, sometimes we need a friend, but we need somebody who can help because you can't talk to yourself all the time. And I do think about a third of Americans live alone. To me, that's one of the most worrisome states of being. We're social creatures and aloneness breeds all of that. I can't, I won't, it's not possible. But if somebody else said, of course you can, I see it. I'm a mimic. So to go back to your point, if I see it and I watch somebody else doing it, I can do that too. Becomes far more likely than I have no idea how to do that. You watch somebody else and I can mimic that. I'm a monkey and they're doing it. I can do it. Particularly when I watch leaders, people who have status and become example, examples of what can be done. You like to emulate them. Part of the reason I wrote the book was that women needed role models. And yes, Sheryl Sandberg is nice, but not the woman I want to be. Give me some others. And they can be insurmountable, perhaps. But if you believe you can, you can. And I know that's becoming quite cliched. Um, but at the end of the day, that's how your mind works. So collaborate with it. Give it a new story. And then watch some others do it. And then practice it. Do it yourself. You know, I'm a, I'm a mediocre golfer, but I watch the golf channel, not to watch the golf channel, but to watch how they hit the ball. Mm -hmm. And I keep saying, hmm, if they can do that, sure, I can do it too. I can't, but they can. <laughs> and I'm going to mimic them. I use that as a metaphor because we all play games in some way. It's another game. 
I love what you're saying, like all the nuggets in there. There's so much and how other people can invigorate us, but we can be our own worst enemy. We are so great at making excuses. I just don't have enough time. (laughs) You know, she's doing it, but I'm so busy. Everybody's busy. Or, oh, that's great that she did that. I kind of had that idea, but she's already done it. So, you know. And, and what you're saying is just so on point. I think all of us as humans are great at making our own excuses and sitting back and just, and then, and then you have that opportunity to see someone that's done it and you're like, and this sounds terrible. You're like, how did uh, she do it? I, I think I'm smarter than her, but she's done that. Why haven't I? When you guys are success stories, I have a hunch we all have at one point said, what am I doing? And how do I turn my skills into an opportunity? Uh, Who's done podcasts before? I mean, I'm in podcasting three and a half years now. When I first started, my publicist for my new book says, you should be a podcaster. I said, really? That's a scary place. So then I did some podcasts and I said, that's how they do it. I could do better. Mm -hmm. And then I launched it and I did it with friends. And I said, be on my podcast. So my first 20 were all people I knew. So it's pretty safe. And then, you know, people started coming. I think we've done 300. Um, and and I think we have enough to go through three months. And people keep coming now. Good people, great people, all kinds of people, across the world people. And, and all we're doing is sharing their stories. But to your point, at the beginning, it was like, oh, how do I do this? <laughs> and, but if they can do it. I can do it. Let's try it. The one thing is about trial, testing. I'm a big tester. You never know. Let's pilot it. Worst case is I'll learn something. Mistakes are okay. A couple of points I want to jump back again. You talked about deconstructing this chaos, and and the message I heard you say is it's not necessarily the fight or flight that we're trying to change. It's it's sort of altering our reality around that pain, right? So you're basically teaching in the work that you do and just your your metaphor that you dropped – you're you're implying that we need to not necessarily learn how to handle the the resonance of the pain. It's more deconstructing the re, altering our reality of what our perception of the pain is. Is yes. that a fair assessment? That's great. If if you'd like me to talk a little bit about what anthropologists do, might sort of lend some more to that. Would that be helpful? Yeah, I do. I want to get into your your actual process, but before we do, I have one more point, if I may. You talked about the one third of humans are alone. Did you mean that metaphorically, or did you mean that literally? No. Literally, I think 30% of Americans live in, uh, alone. So we're, we're being driven into a more isolated capacity right now, given the current state of affairs. That's correct. So do you think, and this is a rabbit hole, <laughs> do you think that that is a calculated measure by someone who is intentionally doing that for a larger purpose? I think that um, living together uh, requires compromise and all kinds of um, relationships. And I won't judge whether it's easier to live alone or to live with others or to live with an extended family. It's a great article in Atlantic, I think last year, um, David Brooks wrote about the nuclear family was a mistake. And so that on the one side you have solos and on the other side you have extendeds. And then you have this nuclear in the middle that sort of became the norm of the desired, maybe not true and not necessarily good. I, I'm, I think solos today are struggling because there's no place to hang out. So you can't simply go and see other people in Starbucks. I had friends who had wonderful active social lives, but now they're alone. They read a lot, they play bridge online, and that keeps them socializing with their friends. I mean, we've come up with lots of things. Please, Diva. I think I I misunderstood, I misstated what I was asking. So this one third of humans that was alone pre-COVID, this is where I'm going with this. And now, over the last nine and a half months, we have been isolated even further. We have yes. been quarantined. We have been shut down. We have been told to stay in our homes. We have been told we can't have social gatherings. And depending upon which state you live in or which part of the country or the world you live in, it's either less or more draconian. Do you think that the isolation is on purpose and that there's a greater calculated, there's a greater calculated strategy to isolate us because of the cascade of what that means when we become isolated and all the psychological damage that does to us as a human, which is a collected species inherently. Well, you're asking a question I haven't thought about, whether this is intentional. 
or it's simply the response to the virus. And the, and I can't answer that because I have no point of view right now on it, but it's a good question. And I think it's worth digging further. Intentionality is an interesting question altogether. Um, and I know some of my clients have made their workers remote, but they would love to bring them back. It's a good question to ask, but I haven't got an answer. Yeah, we always, and I'm not trying to go into conspiracy theorists, and I wasn't asking you to pick a side on that. I, I'm just curious that I, I don't believe personally that anything is, is, I believe in organized chaos has a purpose. And I don't believe that anything happens without some sort of a reason behind it. And mm -hmm. um, truthfully speaking, if, if you take a look at the steps of what has gone on, it, it really on the surface seems to be calculated. And, and it's kind of like the beginning of the conversation they removed books from the original scriptures for a reason yes. to make humans more reliant upon a structured system that someone else in charge needed. So if isolation is calculated now, it's going to make us less independent and more in need of an additional resource. So, so that's where I was going with that question. So it all kind of seems to line up for me. And it's, just, a loaded question. it's a loaded question. I, I don't think I'd right. answer it. Take her into midstream. I will share one thought with you and it's Anthro 101. Data do not exist. So out of context, what's happening has no meaning. And you're giving it some meaning. And that's what humans try and do is make sense out of it. And there are all kinds of ways of making sense out of exactly what's going on. Do I necessarily think there's an intentionality here? No, but there could be a, something coming out of it that reflects the kind of thinking you're, you're having. I don't know. But it is an interesting question because out of context, remote life before this was just the way people lived. Mm -hmm. And now it's intentional. I'll give you one other little data dot, and Lisa, I'll go to you. Uh, before COVID, 30 million Americans were... Um, 50 million Americans were living in the gig economy. That was a third of our workforce. You can almost go with the same discussion because that's grown bigger. Um, there weren't any jobs in the workforce, so they created a whole world of gig economy, mm -hmm. a big one, and didn't have benefits, and it didn't have any backup, and it didn't have any organization. <clears throat> but that's a whole lot of people who were trying to figure it out on their own. And that creates an interesting conversation about those who are employed. I've met permalancers who were never going to go back inside. That was their own choice. But there also wasn't any place to go inside. So there are all kinds of interesting questions that you're raising. I love it. Thanks for the question. Yeah, absolutely. That's what we do over here, deconstructing the normal logic of what people do. I love, I, it. I love what she said, though. We, we as humans want to make sense out of things. I want to package that up, put it in a box, and put it on the shelf. This is why... My marriage didn't work out. There we go. I've mm -hmm. solved it. I can move on to the next thing. We just need to package things up nice and neat. And we put sometimes so much more thought into things than was really even meant. That's a really good point, the packaging. So if you think about how we're raised, it's not just your marriage or your life, but it's literally how we're raised. We're given everything we have is packaged for us, mm -hmm. by and large, where before we weren't, we lived in an unpackaged society, sort of a symbiotic indigenous collective of humans who all had a variety of functions, doing a variety of abstract things, sort of making sense out of it. And now we basically are giving. But Lord, I love a label on something. <laughs> Give it a label. But you, you just made an assumption that people in more simple primitive societies don't have packages. And you, you don't want to deviate from the way we do things here too often because they will easily put you out to, <laughs> to be on your own. Thank you very much. Conformity was survival, you know, and if you didn't hunt that gazelle the way the other guys did, you might not have anything to eat tonight. So I don't think this is unhuman. I think this is what makes us human. Well, what about the one person who devised a better way to hunt that gazelle and he was a nonconformist? Um, that makes the assumption that uh, in ancient times, they sat in that garage and created something on their own. The way we create things is we see things, and then we see a little better thing, and then we try something. And it could have been alone, but it could have been in conversations. It could have been a collaboration. Mm -hmm. don't, don't, let's not assume that it was a soloist <laughs> who did the creative, I even though... It. Our origin myths of the great guys today, whether it's Jeff Bezos or it's, you know, anybody, makes it sound like it's a solo. Mm, not sure. But sure. the origin myth is very certain about it. Um, we'll never be certain about it. 
touche. There, right. there are people that were thrown on the outskirts of town, never appreciated until hundreds of years later. And then they're like, <laughs> then they're a prophet or something. You're like, nobody talked to him when he was alive because he was a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> but he had a great idea. Look what he did with it, right? Um, ideas come from all kinds of places. There's a great book on women as geniuses because women have never been anointed as the genius. Yeah, that's always a guy. And all of a sudden, all these women were really geniuses, but they never, ever got the uh, acknowledgement. So all kinds of the way we work as people is that we give meaning to things. And if it's the way we think it should be, it's a genius. And if it's not, it's just a woman. So cool stuff. Okay, so in the remaining time that we have on this conversation, um, tell me a little bit about how you work with corporations uh, as a corporate anthropologist in the sense of my, my understanding of anthropology on a, on a banal level is it's physiologically and biological. So how do you go in and work with CEOs and corporations who are sort of surface level on that? And how do you deep dive to expose their vulnerability and their transparencies in order to sort of have a greater impact and change? And, and break their mindset. You had already said that they're like, oh, we don't do that here. Mm -hmm. How do you prove that they need to do that there? Well, a couple of things that the basics of anthropology is that people really don't know what they do. And they will tell you a story about what they think they do, their reality. And so as observers or participants, we go in and we try to help them see, feel, and think in new ways. I say those words because they will decide if they see it and they feel it. So we go in and we observe for a while. We hang out. And one of my favorite, I have a great story in my first book about a hospital that I spent four years working with, but we hung out a lot in the uh, cafeteria, in the lobby, uh, among patients, among doctors, and we listened. And we listened to, they were losing $25 million, so we had to listen to how we're we going to turn this place around. I happened to know the CEO, and it was a great opportunity to use anthropological tools, methods, to better understand what was actually happening, not what people said. And it was fascinating to watch how people didn't want to come to this place because they were uncomfortable, because they were left wandering around and didn't have a place to go, all kinds of things to make it fearful instead of comforting. Um, but by observing, and often we take our clients with us to do the observation. I'll tell you a couple of things that are pretty simple to try, but every time I take them to observe, we sit and we watch. You know, you can watch anything from an operating room to a manufacturing floor. And we take notes and we record and then we leave and the client will take notes and record and we'll compare what we saw. Every time the client saw all the things that fit into his mindset of what it was, and I saw all the things that didn't fit at all. The gaps, the what ifs, the pain points, the challenges, he couldn't hear them or she couldn't hear them. And all, that's all I heard. That's what I was listening for. That's what they were. Then we compare notes. And I said, now, how interesting that this is what I heard and this is what you heard. And he said, well, I heard that, but I didn't pay attention to it. I said, well, that's where the opportunities are. Please. Interject real quickly. So I envision you as a consultant in a, in a cubicle filled floor and you're sitting in the corner taking notes and observing. Isn't that a little bit intimidating for people? And does that alter their behaviors? Do they know that there is a consultant over there writing notes about their observ or, or, or their behaviors and how those behaviors are actually their, not their realities or whatever? And does that alter, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but does that alter how they would behave in front of you? You would be amazed at how fast they ignore you. Uh, the, the habits take over. You're not even an intrusion. Um, and so you become an observer that they pay no attention to at all. Humans are really happy just saying, sure, I, I do something called a day in the life of a customer. I say, I just want to spend a day in your life. Can I hang out? Can I shadow you? And they say, sure. Undercover boss is my best advertising. And, and you go and you begin to watch and observe and record. You can ask questions. You can talk to them a little bit. I love listening sessions. Tell me what you were doing. And I often have to listen to what their customers are talking about. So one of the things I have CEOs do, or at least chief managers, is sit on the telephone and listen to the calls coming in. And calls come, I had one client story, and he listened for two hours, and all his customer service person said is, oh, no, we don't do that. No, no, I'm sorry, I don't know who does that, but we don't do that. And finally, he said to her, how come you keep telling them we don't do that? She said, well, that's what you told me. He said, but I can do all of that. She said, no, that's all I do every day is tell them what I don't do. Because they never call for what I do. They call for what they need. 
Ah, at which point he grew 40% listening to what people needed. Now I could preach that I had, and I can talk about it, but until he discovered it in the conversation, and the, uh, why do you tell them we don't do that? Because you told me I didn't, but I can. <laughs> and I, now, if I had done the research, sure, I could tell him, but I had to enable him to experience it. And then it soared. We had another client we finished with January, and um, they are growing like crazy because everything they did was bad for the customer. And we took them out and listened to a dozen of their customers. We recorded it. And I brought it back, and every single one of them had a wish list that they wished they did. It was the same kind of, oh, I could do that. Well, why don't you? Of course, that's not what we do. <laughs> well, why don't you? The customer and outside in thinking changes the way they see themselves. If you're making it and pushing it out, it's not a good solution. If you're listening and pulling it in, collaborate with your customers. They can tell you what they need. And so the changes come through an epiphany, an aha moment in their minds. So mine's a process of discovery. But I, I will tell you, every time I see a project done by outsiders that are presented as if that's the truth, the insiders discount it, delete it. I said, no, no, it's not what I saw. It's what you have to see. It's not what I heard. It's what you have to hear. And I think that the process is so impactful because once they get it, they don't have to work so hard. Ah, and they do even better from there. But it's soft. I mean, I had one client after 90 days, he said, I'm, I, I, I am amazed at what I'm learning. I said, well, just, it's there. It's all around you. If only you listen for it instead of deleting it. And the brain is happy, to Lisa's point, about not hearing any of it. Mm -hmm. And so the process is one of discovery. If I can help them visually explore, next thing you know, they come back, oh my gosh, one client I had, I sent 30 of their managers out to listen to all their customers. And they came back with ideas well beyond any one of us could do. It was a process. And so it opens up our minds. In some ways, the podcasts are sharing in very similar ways, aren't they? Yeah. So you're sort of a Jane Goodall with process reengineering for the corporate world. Yes, sir. And the monkeys are all my clients. Yeah, I know. That's For those of you who don't know who Jane Goodall is, she spent years studying chimpanzees. Uh, and gorillas. And, and, and gorillas. And they're not the nicest people in the world. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's funny because early in her career, some of her early observations, it's funny because we were just talking about this early in, and she didn't write this in any of her books. She, she realized that chimpanzees were, were, were mean to each other. They they right. banded together and had tribal warfare. Yeah, and there was, a, women. there was a pecking order and there was a misogynistic perspective that <laughs> yes. they that they took on. And they literally would, you know, when, when they had power struggles, they would kill some of the other younger monkeys. And she didn't write any of this for years in her journal because she was afraid, A, that her bosses would say, <laughs> cut this off. They're too close to humans. But she made the parallel to chimpanzees culture and humans culture. It's not that dissimilar. So how many of your chimpanzees have erupted in travel warfare in the cubicle? <laughs> well, I try not to hang out. People say, do you ever not work with a client? I, you know, um, what I've learned, I said to you earlier, if you want to change, have a crisis. Um, I usually get brought in when they've tried this and they've tried that and it hasn't worked. And somebody says, you should talk to Andy. Um, and the seven case studies in my first book were all clients who came stuck or stalled at that crisis moment. And then I don't have to work so hard because to your point, you can fight when you're, when you're doing okay and you can compete. I have a belief that creating is far more powerful than competing. Ooh, I like that. Oh. And I, I preach it because when you are creators, you don't have to worry about say the that, Say that again. Say that again. Recreating. Creators instead of competitors. No, no. The previous statement, you said recreating and it's more powerful. is more powerful, more powerful say that than again. competing. Right. I really like that. That's really good. Let's get it on a t-shirt. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we don't have a lot of time, and we're not trying to rush you through this, but I have a, a, a thought, and I see all your books behind you on the shelf. I like that setup there, Subliminal uh, Consciousness. So if, you want to, if anyone wants to pick up Andy Simon's book, it's called Rethink. Tell me a little bit about why you came up with the name for Rethink and what that means to you, literally and metaphorically, and, and sort of the meaning behind it. I, can I just say, to oh, everything that she has said today, and we're, we're talking about business and corporate world and all of that, it's all life lessons too for a personal. Absolutely. It's so it, there's so many nuggets that you've dropped that personally and not just business wise we can use. 
Well, my hope is that's in fact the case because at the end of the day, businesses are people. Mm-hmm. And every story I've told you is about a person who had to in fact see something through a fresh lens. And, and that's what they don't like to do. And individually, we don't like to either. So part of this is how do I begin to see things differently? My book. Um, uh, so the, the book ground, when I was first doing the book, it was a bunch of stories. And I thought it was really nice to share the stories, a gift. But the idea that they were, when they were really smashing the myths, holding you back, set it into an anthropological framework that was far bigger. Remember, we live our perceived realities. And for women, there's a mythology about what women can do or can't do. And so how do you change that? If hard, can I show you women who do it differently that you can then emulate in some fashion? Could their stories, and we know this from research, can your, their stories and telling it change your story? Like my story is changing our thoughts. Could their cha- So women can't lead, they're not decisive. Right? They, they really aren't, you know, particularly good at, at having a vision or, or, you know, getting people to make decisions. And well, that's just not true. So the story that I did in there, Jamie Candy, I knew quite well. She had become CEO of my husband's company and she had led it beautifully, sold it, and then went back to another company she had been with and is leading it beautifully. She had an interesting leadership style. And there have been a bunch of articles, Harvard Business just had one out last week, about how the women during this pandemic have changed the way we lead. How do they do it? You know, Angela Merkel, um, Jacinda Arnaud, how do they lead? Um, they lead through collaboration. Mm-hmm. They lead through wisdom and knowledge. They go through the technology. They bring things together and make wise decisions that others can embrace. Command and control, uh-uh. Now, sure, we can do a command and control kind of model. I know you do. But today, we have so much to assemble into a decision. So being not decisive, but being you know thoughtful, what Jamie does is she hangs out with her customers. She's very anthropological. She hangs out with her staff. When she gets into a company, she begins to understand the stories that they're telling about each other. And what she finds often is that the outside has one story and the inside has a different one. So now how do we get them aligned and then lead them in a very focused, purposeful way? We need purpose, focus, and a little fun to celebrate the mind. So what's our purpose? What are the three things? For her, it was all about the student. And these are the three things we're going to focus on this year. And that sets a foundation for moving forward and people get it and they follow. If leaders are leaders because people follow, she has a whole different style of leading them forward and it works. You don't have to work so hard. Uh, But as a model, it becomes wonderful to share that. Um, Women aren't good entrepreneurs. You know, only 3% of the VC money goes to women. It's always hard. So Stephanie Breedloff has an idea. She sees, she's working for Accenture and she has two kids and paying the nanny taxes is painful. So she has this aha moment. What if I set up a business to help other women pay the nanny taxes? So she starts to do it in her basement over in the evenings and she keeps her day job. And then she begins to grow it a little bit further and she starts to find the agencies who place the nannies. She's got a whole systematic process for building a business, no VC money, just out of revenue, out of her thing. And then she decides to become an entrepreneur and launch it. And her parents and in-laws say, oh, women don't do that. It won't work. It will fail. Well, she grew it and grew it and grew it, and then Care.com bought it for $50 million. Not exactly, but she talks about how she did it, the culture she created, the way she got her folks to relate to the customers. And every one of the stories has a similar kind of theme. They don't solo it. They think bigger. They think about, what am I to serve? What's my purpose? And we've got great research that women, people who have purpose sell far better than people who don't. It's not about the facts and the benefits. It's about the purpose. What am I doing to help you? So cool stuff. And then um, I love Delora Tyler. She's an African-American success story. But she starts out sitting at the Detroit News. And she was the best saleswoman. It's the best salesperson. But she said something and nobody listened. She was an African-American woman. What could she know? (laughs) So finally she got frustrated. She goes out and she launches first media group, picks up clients immediately. And next thing you know, she's a success story because they listen to her, the clients. What's going on in our world today to turn around and help us rethink what we can do and how we can do it? All of the stories around, to your question about the title, 
It wasn't just that they are good stories to share. They were thinking how women and men do things. And in most, many of the cases, there's either a partner or a guy who are supporters, who share the vision. Um, they begin to help. Many of them said, you have to talk about the men who mentored us because there were no women to mentor us. So together, we can go far, far farther, faster together than we can alone. And so I do think it's a time for rethink men and women, conversations that we're having, the way we share, the way you two can collaborate over who's doing what. It can be a whole lot more fun. And I do think we like fun and we can also be prosper. And I don't think it's going to go backwards. I think we're at a moment that's important here. Oh my gosh. Go ahead. No, no, my mind is just reeling. You've given us so much to think about. And and in such a positive way. I think we're hearing so much coming at us from fear and and negativity and everything. Uh -huh. And you're saying this is a, a turning point that you can just get up and run with it. Mm -hmm. It's a paradigm shift, isn't it? It is. Absolutely. Everything we believe to be true maybe isn't true at all. I love the line, the only truth is there's no truth. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I love the I love the perspective of what you just said that we're at a, sort of at a crossroads right now. We 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 honestly have been saying this for six to seven months that we're at a very critical juncture in in, yes. in the evolution of where we go next. And, and there are two sides that are competing for where that evolution the evolutionary path goes. I, I do believe that. I, I personally believe, and I'd like to believe because I'm more of a, a positive person that. The universe has a plan for all of this, just like we're living organisms. Why would the why would it stand to reason that the universe and all its inherent wisdom is any different than us? And is he growing and is he adapting and is evolving? And if you were to do an anthropologic study on that, you'd probably sort of see that sort of thing yes. happening. We we have an opportunity here to pivot to grow, to step into a whole new altered reality of what we are. And I think there's a lot of people who are starting to wake up and realize that. And I believe that that's the universe's plan to put us into this maelstrom of chaos so that we do have an opportunity to grow and evolve and change and adapt and become something bigger and better. Yeah. And I think that's very exciting. Yeah, I do too. I do too. Okay. So you and I, and uh, we could have this we conversation. We have so much to talk about after and think about. You've, you've touched the, <laughs> I know both of us are scribbling the whole time you're talking. <laughs> that's the problem. We should with, be on a laptop doing it, but that, that, scribble. That's the problem with podcasting is as much as we love it, there's so many conversation pieces that we go down here and, you know, we try to have a 30 minute call, but it turns into an hour and a half. And then it's like, people don't have the attention spans for an hour and a half. So we'd like to do this again, truthfully. I think there's a lot of opportunity to expand on a, bunch of different topics here. Um, my takeaway from the call is that what actually happens is not the same thing as what people are saying happens. So that sort of altered reality, that sort of paradigm shift. If, if there was one sort of takeaway that you could give all of us to alter our own personal perspectives and realities, what would that be? Is there sort of an exercise that, that I can sit in and work on or a, a visualization technique? Is there something that you could pass along to us today that would change how we, alter, how we can alter our realities? Well, you know, the, the future is yours to create. We're futurists. We live today based upon what we think the future is going to be. So, if you want to get there, imagine it. And if you begin to imagine it, write your story. You know, when you finish, you have a story about what you want the future to be like. Envision it. It's not hard to write that story or draw a picture of it and put it up and begin to imagine that to happen. But as futurists, and we really are futurists, um, without that, we wander around trying to figure out what to do today. Once I have that future, I can live today to get me there. Now, is it sure, certain? No, nothing is. So there may be some detours along the way, but as futurists, we think that the past is going to be propelling us forward. That's not true. What propels us forward is where we think we're going. And we like to protect ourselves and our status, true, but that future, if we can create a better one as you're evolving, you know, it's one thing to talk about, it's another thing, what do you want to see happen here? And let's assume that I want to see men and women working together to build a better, you know, fill in the blank, a better society, a better climate, a better country, um, because in fact, we are on this country together. And how can we do that? And what kind of conversations would we have? 
And what kind of interviews would you begin to put together intentionally to get to that future? And how would you celebrate when you get there? Now, celebration is really interesting. We think it's an afterthought, but the mind, when we celebrate something, the mind remembers it as important. Hmm. So if you put those two things together as a futurist, draw that future story. And every time you take a step along the way, celebrate it. And then make sure that a year from now we've gone there. The reminder is happy. You have a party. We all get together on a virtual <laughs> stream yard and celebrate how far we've come helping people. I mean, what's my job? You know, I'm at a point where I want to help people get to better. For women to be the best they can be, how can I help? And I can't tell you how many women are stuck or stalled as the companies are. And how can I help companies help men and women become the best they can be? And why not? And they define what best is. So I don't have a, a, a 10 step you got to get to here. The question is, what do you want to be? And what do you, each of you want to be? And how are you going to do it? Because this is a very special, a special podcast that you have to help others do better. And I do think it's an honor to be on it. So I can't tell you what fun I've had today. Thank you. We'll close, too. What do you have to close out? Anything? Well, I've just got to say everything. You're you're my new superhero. Everything you said has resonated so strongly, and I think we um we're gonna work on those vision boards today, right? <laughs> For sure. But you know, you've given us so many things to celebrate over, and a direction, and to alter our reality and our perspective, and understanding that. You know, when we both come to a situation, we both see it so differently and yeah. to open our eyes and to, to see more clearly. Lisa and I are watching a show and we don't watch a lot of TV, but we're watching a show on Netflix right now called Dark. If you're not familiar with it, it's, nope. fanta it's fantastic. It's, it's all about altering realities and how there is no such thing as time and future affects past and present and present affects past and future. Oh, it sounds like right up my alley. Oh, my, it's you, German subtitles. So you, you, you can't, you can't work on your laptop and watch it. You have to actually pay attention, which none of us do anymore. We do three things at once. <laughs> but it sounds like it grabs you. It's brilliant. And, and we don't, I, I don't even have television. We just have a fire stick, Amazon, and we watch, you know, shows here and there, but we, her son turned us on to it. And there's a lot of lines in that show that have paralleled some of the things that you've said. So I think you would appreciate it. But there was one line in particular, and I wrote it down and he was talking about how, so they, they travel back and forth through time over 33 day cycles, because that's a cycle of something to do with astronomics. And I forget all the terminology behind it, but in those 33 cycles, there was a line and and the the traveler, the one that has sort of that You're dark such a nerd. The one that has those sort of dark and grim look that you'd like. He kind of um is it Mikhail? No, the younger guy. Anyway, there's a character and, and he says Jonas, the, his name is Jonas. And he says my, my main name, you should know that. Duh. And he and he <laughs> says to so he traveled, he traveled back. I'm sorry, he traveled 33 years into the future to meet his younger version, or another way, half the other way around. He traveled 33 years back to meet his younger version, and he said to him, because the guy says, well, how can I change all this? And he said, the only way to alter this change is you have to start. And he said, when you do nothing, nothing happens. And you, 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 <laughs> That's a great, great line for today. Yeah, when you do nothing, nothing happens. And so I love the fact of changing your paradigm, altering your realities. It's all about perception. It's brilliant stuff. So We also have to believe you can. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which goes back to our biblical references. I'm going to go somewhere, can I? Take it. Belief is <laughs> belief and, and, and modern modern scripture has said if you believe in god then you can and have faith in this sort of thing then miracles are possible but in reality what the original scriptures were saying is if you believe in god being who we are we are god we are our own inner power mm -hmm. if you can believe it and act as if it's already happened then you have faith as small as a mustard seed you can move mountains, which is actually what the scripture said. So it's all about faith, believing. When faking. does this church that you're developing start? <laughs> I didn't start it. We started it. All of us, there's no such thing as time. So we're just keep okay. repeating all this stuff. So we may have met Andy in a previous life and we had this sort of been part of wisdom. I, and I don't argue with that. I do think serendipity in a path through life has been, I don't know. I, I'm just in awe of how many serendipitous moments have led to all kinds of big stuff that I would never have anticipated, as long as you stay open to it and show up. Um, Abraham, he's the, uh, what's the name of the woman who does the manifestation? 
she says that your your serendipitous moments are nothing more than you just remembering when it happened before. That's yes. all that they are. So that you've already experienced it. In fact, everything that you're doing right now, you've already experienced it. Every idea you ever had, you've already done it. Yes. It's already happened. You're just now stepping into the remembering of it all. And sharing it. Absolutely. Okay. Oh gosh. Any last thoughts? No, there's so much to think about still. Just really appreciate you sharing your time, your your energy, all your thoughts with us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Andy. Thank you again. This is Andy, and you, Andy Simon. If you want to find her, her book is Rethink. uh, Rethink. And if you want to find her, it's I'm sorry, I'm pulling up your URL. I had it written down up here. It's SimonAssociates.net. Stephanie, if you could throw that on the screen, it's SimonAssociates.net online. And if you want to find her on Instagram, which if we're not following each other, we probably should. Yes. Um, she is Andrea, A-N-D-R-E-A-J Simon on Instagram. Yes. And if you're looking for some knowledge drops on how to alter your perception, change your life, you can stop now doing nothing because nothing happens when you do nothing. May I add one invitation? Um, we had to postpone our book launch party from January 6th because of what was going on now to February the 16th at 7 p.m. And you can register at our website, andysimon.com and simonassociates.net. And you'll see the registration pop right up. Um, but we really had a huge turnout, and we would we'd love to share some more with them. We'll be drawing uh, six books to give away, um, and I have Freddie Ravel, the Grammy artist who's going to be performing Life in Tune, and a whole lot of folks sharing with you their own little life journey. So come along. It would be fun to share. How do I get an autographed copy with some sort of wisdom note on the inside cover from you personally? Just send me your address. I'll send it over. Stephanie's on that. <laughs> Nice. Drop me some knowledge. It's just going to blow my mind. Okay. <laughs> I think that you have so much knowledge in there to share. It's just delightful to share it. Thank you so much. What a treat. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Best of luck. And I hope that we can stay in touch. I'd like to follow along. I am going to join your book launch. And I think I would really uh, speak for both of us. I'd like to have you back on here and maybe dive into some deeper things. It would be my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have Thank a fantastic you. day. And you as well. <laughs>